Welcome. For those of you that either came in a bit later or are just tuning in on the live stream, welcome. My name is Bridget Reeves and I have the privilege of being a partner here at Lettered Streets Covenant Church in Sauna. I also recently joined the lead team and I'm enjoying learning from so many of you that have gone before me in those roles. Um, I am excited now, um, I had some moments of not excitement a few weeks ago, um, that over the next four weeks we're going to walk through the book of Esther. I love Old Testament literature and narrative. I love the rich interchange between people and the Lord like in Habakkuk and Job. I love God's supernatural intervention like with Moses and the ways that in the narrative sometimes God provides such clear direction like with Abraham. Uh, but Esther has none of those things, <laughs> none of them. Uh, I definitely had a couple moments after choosing the book of Esther where I, with the Lord where I was like, what have I done? Uh, why this book? Lord, this book is full of brutal sub-themes like genocide and sleeping innuendos and oppression. What was I thinking? Uh, and this happens nearly every time I choose something to speak on, and so it, it shouldn't have been surprising to me, but this one in particular was rough. Um, but it has become one of my favorite books. There is good news for us in the book of Esther, specifically for those of us that I believe, and we would count as that, that live in this culture of moral ambiguity, political struggle, and for anyone facing life's difficult decisions. So, with that, let's pray before we begin our journey on the streets of Persia. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it freely and study it freely here in this place. God, I lift up to you this next bit of time, Lord, and I pray that anything that would get in the way of what you're doing in our hearts, Lord, move it to the background. Anything that is of me, would, that you would, I pray that you would move that to the background, Lord. And anything that is of you, Lord, let that cement in our hearts. Let that, that meld into us, Lord, and let us yield to it. Yield to your work and surrender to what it is you have for us today. God, I pray that as we go through the history and all of that stuff, the nitty-gritty of the next two chapters, Lord, I pray that, that you would remind us of your presence in the midst of that, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so while we walk through these at times brutal and sometimes comical 10 chapters of the book of Esther, a theme we will be focusing on is one of God's providence. Is it okay if I move this, Josh? Okay, thank you. I'm slightly concerned I'm going to trip and have it fall down. Um, and we'll be focusing on God's providence, um, which essentially, if we we're gonna define that, is the activity of God working out his redemptive plans for his creation. So God working out his rescue plan for his people. Or if you're like me and like a shorthand for definitions, it's God for us. So God for us. And God's providence is really fitting for this book because God is actually not mentioned once in the entire 10 chapters. In Esther, we get to see God's providence. We get to see him working out his covenant promises with his covenant people in the midst of fear and loss and grossness and complexity. 
God's providence plays out in these behind the scenes sorts of ways, in different ways than with others such as Moses. There is no burning bush call to action in the book of Esther, and yet an unlikely someone steps up. There is no supernatural staff, and yet world leaders are swayed. He is there even if his name is not mentioned. I'm gonna do some recap of chapter one and kind of walk us through that, and then we're gonna dive into chapter two, and then we'll, we'll land this thing. So just if you're following along, um, we're, if you're in the NIV Bible um, that's in the back, I also have a couple up here in the front if you wanted those. Um, they look like this if you wanted to follow along. We're on page 492. Um, if you want, I'm not going to read through chapter one again. LL did an amazing job. Thank you so much. Uh, and um, can we just give her a bit of applause for the way that she dealt with those names? That was incredible. I definitely had to look them up on YouTube a couple times, and I'm kind of embarrassed how much I had to practice some of them, so nice work. Uh, so though the author of this story, of the book of Esther, is unknown, it is likely someone that lived close enough to this time period that they were familiar with the Persian customs and culture of the times. We enter the story in 483 BC with the author describing the king hosting a large banquet to gain support for a military campaign against Greece. Um, fun side note, uh, I like to geek out on some of this stuff sometimes. The word banquet and feast is used 20 times in the book of Esther, whereas the rest of the Old Testament as a whole 24 times. So this book, lots of feasting and banquets happening here. King Ahasuerus had been king at this point in 483 BC for three years and had a large ruling area already. Torin, would you mind putting up the map? Okay, so this gives us a bit of an idea as to like his large ruling area. It went from India to Egypt and then up towards Greece. And you can keep it up there for a little bit. Thanks, Torin. Um, sometimes in Hebrew li literature, nicknames or names that allegorize a person are given rather than their real names in the books. These nicknames given are often telling about who someone is, what role they'll play, and they're often given to make us giggle as readers. Um, Clearly, some of this is lost on us 21st century readers who don't know Hebrew very well, myself included. Uh, an example of this elsewhere in biblical literature is in the book of Ruth, where Elimelech's two sons are called Milan and Kilion, which means sickly and weakly, and then they die a couple of verses later. And so in the book of Esther, though, the first hint of the author's humor is with the king Ahasuerus' name. So his Persian name is King Xerxes, and the transliteration of his name, the Hebrew transliteration, Ahasuerus, sounds like King Headache to the original readers. And he does prove throughout the story to be quite a bit of a headache. So the first section of chapter one basically gives us some background and context as to the empire. Xerxes' empire is vast, right? Like it encompasses most of the known world. Um, uh, LL mentioned, she said in her reading, 127 provinces. That's a lot. It's a lot of place, a lot of provinces. He has significant influence and is trying to 
grasped for even more in Greece. So as part of this attempt to gain support, he throws a huge feast with all the pomp and circumstance. Think the recent crowning of King Charles. That happened in May of this year. It cost between 50 and 100 million pounds, that coronation. So think to that level of like pomp and circumstance. The closest thing in scripture we have described like this with the fine linen and the pillars and the white cotton curtains is the tabernacle. This description gives us an indication of who Xerxes thinks he is. He is a leader about image. He thinks a lot of himself. And this feast was not just a pep rally for the troops. It was intended to show people that if they followed him and, loyal, and were loyal to the empire and fought for the king, they will be rewarded. Xerxes is essentially saying, you see this glory, the splendor of my kingdom? Well, you could have some of it when we win. I can make good on my promises. Look at my riches. Come follow me. So after this initial the initial 180-day feast, Xerxes throws a seven-day feast that served as the culmination of the 180-day one. And this one is thrown in Susa. It's one of the capital cities of Persia. Um, if you see the little name Persia, it's like up and to the left, the northwest. I'm directionally challenged, but I think it's northwest of Persia there. Um, so that's where it is. You're welcome to take that map down, Torin. Thank you. And on the seventh day of the seven-day feast, Xerxes, merry with wine, commands the seven eunuchs who serve him to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Okay, so if you're following along in the Veggie Tales version of Esther, this would be the point when King Xerxes asked Vashti to make him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And Vashti says back, no, you make your own peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But to get back to the biblical account, the author gives a slight indication that this is not a normal thing for Xerxes to do, given that he is merry with wine. This, of course, does not excuse this behavior at all. Objectifying a person is gross if it occurs once or if it occurs a hundred times. But it does give us a glimpse into the fact that Xerxes probably thought he would not be turned down. But Queen Vashti said no. In today's world, we'd be seeing hashtag Vashti said no all over the place. It would be trending on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the places that all the kids are into these days on social media that I don't know the names of, but it would be trending all over. It would be big news. And the narrator does not give us reasons for her no. And this is one of those instances where we are reminded of two things when reading Old Testament literature. One, we have to resist the temptation to cheer or boo characters where the author does not give us a reason to. It would be so easy to say, yay, go Vashti, you tell him, girl. And at the same time, somebody could be saying, Vashti should have her crown taken from her. She didn't submit to her husband. We will be reminded of this principle to not moralize or cheer or boo characters or exemplify characters, however you want to say it, with Esther and Mordecai in a little bit. Right now we have Vashti as the example. 
Secondly, we have to resist the temptation to apply our modern day understanding and ethics to a historical and cultural context so wildly different from our own. That all being said, Vashti said no, and Xerxes became enraged. Here on day 187 of his feasts, he's gaining support to go into battle, and he just showed a ton of people that his own wife won't follow his commands. This looks pretty bad for him. And from what we know of Xerxes so far with all of his pomp and circumstance, he is all about the looks. So what does Xerxes do? He turns to his wise men, his closest advisors, and they make this somewhat private affair between him and Vashti into a much larger public one. One of his advisors told him, oh, this offense is not just against you. This is against the whole kingdom. The order of nature is thrown out of whack here. Because, because of this, soon all the women in the empire are going to be disrespecting their husbands, just like Vashti. We should banish Vashti from queenship. He basically says like she can't come before him anymore, which is actually exactly what she said she was not going to do, ironically, and send out an edict declaring that every woman should give honor to their husbands and that every man be master in his own household. This king, seemingly all significant and powerful, with all the splendor and riches, has to demand respect. And the response when he is humiliated is, or there is a lack of respect, is to reach for more power and control and to demand it. The irony here is that Vashti's response may not have spread so far without this edict. But now Xerxes has just made sure that everyone in his kingdom, from India to Egypt up towards Greece, is going to hear about his humiliation. And this is the first, line, first in a line of issues with Xerxes and his advisors. The author is wanting to us to see this foolishness. Here Xerxes is claiming to be worthy of loyalty and respect, but not only does his own wife not show him respect, but he is being manipulated by his own advisors. He does not make decisions on his own. So instead of seeing a rich and powerful king with a stable and thriving kingdom, we see an impulsive king swayed by those around him. And this is the context that the covenant people of God are living in and trying to live faithfully in. Some of you may have been around leaders like this. It creates fear and instability, not to mention the headache that the author mentioned in chapter one, verse one. And it is in, within this culture of fear and grabs at control that we enter chapter two. If you could please stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able. I'm gonna be reading today from the ESV, um, pretty similar to the NIV, if you're following along there. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom and to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel under custody of Haggai. And it's Haggai, not Haggai. This is not the prophet. It's, um, it sounds a little bit like the guy, but it's H-E-G-E. 
AI, in case that gets confusing. Um, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman, let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Hayir, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman to the best place to the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. You're welcome to be seated. And just as a reminder, in case you need it, there is ice water or water in the back corner back there behind Kim and then back in the foyer area. Um, Let's try not to faint on each other here. Um, okay, so going back to verse one of chapter two, we have some cultural context here. King Ahasuerus, if I'm saying that correctly, King Ahasuerus um, is rethinking, reconsidering what he decreed against Vashti. And like in Persian customs, it was often that people hashed out decisions and choices while intoxicated, they came up with some solutions, and then when sober, decided if those solutions still made sense. And, and vice versa happened too. So they would come up with solutions while sober and then hash them out again when intoxicated and decide if they made sense. And so here, King Ahasuerus is sober now, reconsidering all this stuff with Vashti and wondering, is this how, how it is? What should we do now? And so here he is making the final decision. And his advisors, oh, they came to his rescue again. So his advisors have a plan again. And so this plan that the advisors came up with is not typical of how kings often chose wives in Persia. Usually they chose them from a high-ranking family of their advisors, which tells us that that first advisor back in chapter one, named Mukin, may have had some ulterior motives for suggesting that Vashti be removed from queenship. He may have been hoping, oh, one of my family members is gonna become queen and then I will move up in the ranks of the empire. Anyways, so another strange happening, eventually, coincidentally, allowing Esther to a pathway to become queen. And then we have these somewhat troubling verses verses two through four. Um, and this passage is offensive to us for so many reasons. Women are spoken about as objects. They're taken from their families not to return. This basically is a sleeping contest. Some people may call it R-A-P-E. And that's just to name of the few reasons that this is a concerning passage 
to many of us as we read it. Original readers would know that this sort of treatment is not unique to women of this time. Unfortunately, Herodotus, a famous historian of the times, reports that 500 young boys were brought and castrated annually to serve as eunuchs in the king's court. Clearly, this doesn't make it better, and you can't make the argument that the women actually had it better than the men by any means, but it does remind us that we should not make this a woman's thing or issue, nor is it helpful to apply our modern-day understanding and interpretation immediately to a situation and culture with so much nuance. That being said, I want to make this clear. Though the book of Esther does not directly call out the objectifying of women, or men for that matter, that does not mean God is okay with it. After working for years with women who have either dealt with abuse or trafficking, I know you don't have to be a part of a particular socioeconomic class or look a certain way to have dealt with that. So if you're listening to this and reading the book of Esther and thinking, whoa, this is tough for me to listen to. This is tough for me to read, for my heart to hear. It's bringing up some strong emotions or memories for you. Please know that God knows your pain. He hears it. You are seen. The story of Esther is descriptive of what happened. It is not prescriptive as to what God calls or instructs his people to do. God is for his people, all his people, even the vulnerable, even the woman. Psalm 34, 18 said, God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If this kind of, if this touches your heart in some way or you're feeling like that, that is you tonight, um, whether from the past or currently, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to, to talk further about it. Okay, so after that, those, that section of three verses, we pick up in verse five, where the author mentions Jew for the first time. And it's actually the first mention that would indicate any relevance to the covenant people of God reading this book. Up until that point, the Jews weren't mentioned. It was just kind of this, this historical narrative, and I'm giving us a past, a setting here. But in verse five, we hear about Mordecai's genealogy, which places him smack in the middle of history with his great-great-grandfather being carried away, passive tense, we'll talk about that later, to exile. And though many Jews had gone back to Jerusalem at this point and rebuilt the temple, Ezra one through six had happened, clearly some are still scattered. And again, we are not given reason for Mordecai and Esther staying abroad. In verse seven, we meet Esther. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. In Hebrew narrative, the first thing said to describe a person, particularly if it was a physical attribute, says something about their role in the story. Her beauty, for good or bad, is definitely a part of her journey recorded here. Esther is introduced as a person with two names, 
the only person in the story to be introduced with two names, revealing to us that in some ways she's straddling two worlds, two identities, raised in the Jewish culture and yet traveling day to day in the opulent Persian one. If you wanna geek out with me for a second, there is a good chance that the name Esther is another one that's allegorized by the author. The Hebrew transliteration of Esther is the Babylonian goddess of love and war, which would be so fitting since on one hand, she does end up winning the king's favor after one night, that would be the love angle. And on the other hand, later on in chapter nine, she requests that the Jews be allowed to continue war for an extra day in Susa, love and war. Verse eight reads, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the woman. The passive voice here was taken along with the other woman. This is the same sort of passive voice in verse six and later on in verse 16, when she is taken for her night with the king, another passive voice. This indicates, this passive voice indicates being caught up in circumstances beyond their control. And we'll get back to this again in a second, but just note that for now. And this is really important. The narrator does not vindicate, oh, sorry, we'll go back. We see Xerxes here after she's taken to the harem spare no expense on this beauty or sleeping contest. In the midst of this beautifying, we see Mordecai telling Esther to conceal her Jewish identity, even though this goes against this Torah for standing for the one true God. There must have been significant reason to fear to tell her not to share that part of her heritage. And this is really important. The narrator does not vindicate Esther and Mordecai for this. They do not explain this decision or others for them. Compromising Jewish religious and ethical principles would have been an important thing to work through for those scattered in the diaspora. Similar to how it is for Christians today living in a secular society. And yet, the decision was made for Esther to not reveal her faith or heritage. And for us, passing judgment is not the point. Regardless of their motives, ethics, or faith, their decisions move events in ways to fulfill God's covenant promises to rescue his people. None of us have pure motives all the time. Hopefully that's not news to us. God works through Esther and Mordecai's imperfect decision to fulfill his perfect purposes. God does not intervene as he did with Pharaoh. And yet the power that decreed the people of God's destruction later decreed their deliverance later in this book. God works in mysterious ways. So to fast forward a year and a few verses, Esther has earned favor in the sight of Haggai overseeing the woman and it is now her turn to go into the king. 
She chooses to bring only what Haggai suggests, and this usually means clothing, jewelry, sometimes aphrodisiac potions. Sometimes this is seen as like a wedding gift because after this, the woman would go to the place with the concubines and there they would stay unless the king summoned them again. They weren't able to go back to their families and they weren't ever able to marry. And again, here we have the passive voice used to describe Esther being taken to the king in verse 16. It reads, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head. The author is creating a situation of ambiguity and tension in describing Esther being taken and the king loving her more than all the other women, but is careful to avoid the word marriage. Esther is crowned Queen Esther. And we have no idea how she feels about it. We are not given a character evaluation or a look inside of her heart We are not given an idea as to if she absolutely hated the whole situation and she wanted out. We walk away with questions like, did she like winning? Did she like this power? Did she like the title of being queen? And here's where it gets complex. Esther did not rise to this place of queenship through obedience to God's law. And this is in contrast to Joseph, who when faced with the advances the sleeping advances of Potiphar's wife, he runs the opposite direction. It is hard to make Esther a role model. Maybe she hated the whole situation with all her might. And if she did, the author gave no such indication. At times, I think for myself in the past when reading the book of Esther, I have settled for uh, the ends justify the means sort of argument. If not consciously, then subconsciously when reading. I had not given much thought to the complexity of choices that Esther was up against. The pressure from the secular society, the fear of harm and oppression due to her faith, the injustices done to her, the moral and ethical issues she had to contend with, because I knew in the end, I knew the end of the story ultimately. I could sit down and read the 10 chapters in one sitting. This book spans about 12 years. This is a good amount of time there. I know that God saves his people. But as a woman, as a human, that's been faced with difficult choices with no clear right or wrong answer or option and no clear word from God at times, I can't ignore Esther's situation, her plight. And I think that that's the point. Because this is often how it is in the real world, isn't it? Decisions are mixed with good and bad We are in situations both because of other people's choices and because of our own. We sin and we have sin done to us. We pray but don't have clarity. We have mixed motives and the people making decisions around us have mixed motives. We read the Bible but can't find direct application. 
We cannot look to Esther as a guide in how to make decisions in a mixed up, morally ambiguous, complicated world. What we know from the rest of scripture is that we are responsible to God to live as faithfully to his word as we know how. In Esther, though, we see that God is gracious with our decision making. He's omnipotent, he's all powerful, and he will bring his good purpose to completion in and through us as imperfect people. We are not meant to sit in judgment of Esther or Mordecai. They are not who the story is ultimately about. This story is about the author of their stories of all of our stories. Let's go to his table now.